This week on Punch Mountain, the family that plays together stays together, and the family that fights crime together will eventually get killed. Take off that cape because we're watching The Incredibles. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies. Not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Incredulous. Can you believe it? Mr. David Hotta. Elastiboy, Mac Blake, how are you, my friend? I'm doing good, David, because tonight we're breaking new ground on this podcast. Is that right? How so? Because this is our first animated entry into the Punch Mountain rankings. We're talking about The Incredibles. That's right. The Pixar classic from 2004, directed by action director Brad Bird. You know him. He directed Ratatouille and The Iron Giant and other things, too. So you and I are coming up on 40 episodes, and we thought, well, let's do an animated action movie. And I don't know the first thing about animated action, but this popped into my head. Uh, I remember really enjoying this when it first came out. I remember it being more action than I expected. Whenever I think about this, I think of it as one of my favorite superhero movies. So I figured, you know what? Why not? If we start off small, or if we start off with a with a layup as far as animated movies go, let's go for it. This one still held up for me. It had some cracks in it that I didn't quite recognize when I first saw it back in 2004. But I think this is an incredible movie, but... And I'm excited to talk about it, but uh, let me hear your opening thoughts, Mac. What are are you thinking about The Incredibles? Yeah, it's a pretty fun movie. Uh, But back to uh, animated movies real quick. Yeah, I'm still waiting on that anime pick, audience. Please suggest an anime for us. I mean, the problem is is most of the animes I know that I've seen, I haven't really seen too many. But like Ghost in the Shell or Akira, I would kind of put them as like sci-fi first. I want an action first anime that's also not Cowboy Bebop, which I enjoy the Cowboy Bebop movie, but... I don't know. I want something that kind of stands on its own. So yes, audience, please help us out. Please suggest an action-oriented uh, animated movie. It's also not Spider-Verse. Please help us out. And if we don't get any suggestions, I will say that uh, I just saw that the Venture Brothers movie is rated R, and that is the biggest selling point for me. See, I definitely want to see that movie, but I don't know. For some reason, I want something that kind of just stands on its own. Doesn't mean we can't watch, uh, you know, Ghost and Shell or, or Venture Brothers later for a, uh, you know, a Punch Mountain pick because the the mountain decreest and we don't fleeest from our destiny ist. Oh God, Ugh, I feel like I just swallowed a knife. All right, David, the movie at hand, The Incredibles. I remember the first time I saw this in theaters. I loved it. I remember when I came home instead of going to bed. I like I had to like stay up and um, I was working on a comic strip at the time and I, I stayed up even though it was like very late and I had work to do and I just like I had to create something like I was so like jazzed by the movie that I was like oh I need to draw a comic or something uh, and I actually remember the comic that I drew it was a joke about Carmen San Diego so look eh, not everything's a winner <laughs> but now David when you suggested it I was hesitant to do this movie and that is because I have now seen it too much and not in its entirety but chunks of it. Because I got a kid, a very sweet four-year-old, and he likes to watch parts of The Incredibles and The Incredibles 2, mainly the parts with Elastigirl. I'm not going to unpack that. Let's go. But he, <laughs> maybe he likes a, a powerful mom. Maybe that resonates more to him than strong dad, which I, I can understand. Well, maybe he likes playing with dump trucks. Oh, boy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I did see someone's Twitter handle as Pixar Mom Thick was their name uh one time how many season thick you bet your ass it was two david <laughs> because and because i've seen this so much i was like oh god do i have to watch this again but david we've talked about it before and that as i say but david too much 
But also, David, we've talked about it before. <laughs> One of the joys of this podcast is watching movies that have sort of become like wallpaper because you just they're so uh, ever present that you stop noticing them. Taking those movies, watching them with fresh eyes, and discovering, oh my goodness, I've kind of taken this amazing movie for granted. It happened with uh, Speed and Terminator 2, and now we're doing The Incredibles. David, this is the first Pixar film uh, starring humans. And the thing is, is with the animation, you can tell. If you watch The Incredibles 2, which I have, but I'll put a pin in this. David, what do you think about The Incredibles 2? A sequel, it took 14 years to make that thing. Oh boy, I'm not quite sure it needed to take 14 years. I remember liking it a lot. I remember feeling like I was in the minority on that because a lot of the criticism I heard about, about The Incredibles 2 was just, it's more the same. Like there's no, there's no stakes. It's just the further adventures of. And I was like, yeah. And like, I'm okay with that. That's why you buy comic books. Like not every comic is going to be the most important comic book in that run. Sometimes Superman's just fighting Parasite and I'm okay with that. Yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, David. I think it's because there was such a long gap that people kind of expected something more. I mean, something that startled me was the fact that Incredibles 2 picks up right after Incredibles 1. You know, it's like seconds later, Incredibles 2. And because it just felt like the further adventures is like, you couldn't have turned this out like in a, a couple of years. Why did, uh, why did this take 14? I don't know. But yeah, the animation between uh, Incredibles 1 and Incredibles 2 took a, took a giant leap forward. Because you can tell Pixar there's still some growing pains in the animation. Uh, and not just like in the way it's lit. And sometimes it does have, <laughs> it looks like um, a commercial for like toenail fungus. And <laughs> it's kind of jarring at first. But then honestly, like you stop, you don't notice it after a while. And, you know, you get into the story and, and the fact that these kind of look like uh, 3D balloon animals uh, come to life. Uh, yeah, it doesn't, does not bother you. There is also some animation in it that's a little rough. It kind of looks like puppets at times instead of humans. But overall, if you're asking if the movie holds up well, I mean, again, visually, like you five minutes into it, you don't care. And it's also bolstered by a, a kind of an amazing voice cast in this thing. Not that Craig T. Nelson is like, he's not Robin Williams as Genie or whatever, or even Ice Cube as Superfly in the new TMNT movie. Oh. But he does have a good, excuse me, a perfect voice for Mr. Incredible. And then Holly Hunter crushing it as uh, Mrs. Incredible. And then uh, we'll talk about it later, but also Jason Lee, who at the time I was very high on. And now I forget uh, is a human being that existed. I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. Like, you know, you're absolutely right. The voice casting in this is going to be the MVP. They picked the people who needed to be those roles instead of just picking Chris Pratt or whoever, you know, the biggest star is at the moment. I'm on the other side of this from you where I have not seen this movie too much. I've actually been very precious with this movie. I, I've kind of kept it at, at an arm's length because I didn't want to burn myself out on it and run it thin. So I'm welcoming the opportunity to talk about it on this episode and kind of put it on the shelf and, and finally just say, these are my thoughts on it. Let's set it in stone. Let's put it on the mountain. This movie's still great. I will say this though, watching it now, you know, 43 years old, 20 years removed from when I first saw it, Bob Parr, Mr. Incredible, is hard to like. He's, he's a difficult husband. He's kind of a brat when it comes to being a lead, but it's easy to forget that like, you know, in a generation of anti-heroes where heroes have to be tough or brooding or, you know, not have any emotions or feelings, it's easy to forget that characters can grow. Like, watching this movie, I kind of got impatient with, like, hey, man, how come I don't like this guy immediately? And it's like, well, the movie, you know, it's a Pixar movie. It knows where it's taking you. It knows what it wants to do with this character. So I just let this movie take over, and I really enjoyed it. I'm going to enjoy talking about it, so let's get into it. Before we go any further, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search The Incredibles on Google, 
The results include these frequently asked questions, so let's do some quickly provided answers. David, are there Easter eggs in Incredibles? Why, yes, there are. In the wedding scene, if you freeze it, you'll see the minister's bone bone. Mac, is Edna a man or woman in Incredibles? I'm right there with you, person who asked this question. I don't know, but I definitely want to have sex with it. David, who is the girl villain in Incredibles, huh? Uh, her name is Helen Parr, and she thinks she knows everything. Mac, is there a part three of The Incredibles? Yes, it's called Incredibles 3. Mr. Incredible still doesn't get it that he can help out at home. It's a woman's world, according to Bob Barr. Before we dive into the story of a man who could not be more bored with his family unless they're punching people for attention, let's check in with two friends who are thrilled to live their lives as borderline ghosts. That's us, David. It's a friendship check-in. We're the friends. David, Hada, how are you? I am doing well. I have snacks. Ah, there we go. I can talk about snacks. It's my weekend. I did my Friday snack run. It's not even Friday. It's my Friday. You know, I loaded up on salty things. I loaded up on sweet things. But then, Mac, I needed something to keep me awake for this episode. And I normally go with a Coca-Cola and some coffee. This week, I went with Mountain Dew. Oh, my goodness. I might as well have just bought black tar heroin, Mac. I don't know why I thought I could handle this much of, like, just a, a hardcore sugar rush at this late at night. These are the things in life where I'm like, oh, crap, I'm old. Like, I bought a sugary cereal the other day. I bought some cookie crisp because I was, you know, yeah. I like a snack during the day. And uh, it makes my teeth hurt. Like, I can feel in between my teeth whenever I eat it. And that's not a good sign. So, like, I have to go back to the bran flakes that I bought to uh, to stay on top of everything. It, it's grim, Mac. It's hell getting old. Yeah, I uh, guzzle Dr. Pepper whenever I give him the opportunity. However, I cannot drink a Coca-Cola. I feel like it leaves a film on my teeth that makes me, I just run to that uh, the toothbrush. David, I thought you might be drinking a Mountain Dew because you did, of course, uh, mountain bike uh, your way to the microphone tonight. Uh, what, what is that like? I, I've, it's been decades since I've drank a Mountain Dew, to be honest with you. It's tasty, but it... I can't feel my tongue. Like, it really does feel like there's almost a sort of a sugary wax coating over my tongue. And it's like, my mouth's numb. I hope uh, I hope I could form words over the next two hours. I used to work with this guy. He was like one of the bosses of the company. And he was uh, like a silver fox, very handsome, very calming presence. Just a nice guy to be around. And yet he drank Diet Mountain Dew. And I'll be honest with you, every time I saw that green <laughs> and white can get raised in the air, I thought less of him. Sure. As you should. And this is a man who once bought me a meatball sub. You think that would ingratiate me for life? How are you, Mac Blake? How, how's my friend? I'm doing good. Quick shout out, by the way, Jeremy, who uh, came up to me at a comedy show and said he listened to Punch Mountain. I think I might have thanked him on the podcast before, but even if I have double dip, Jeremy, thanks for the shout out. Also, something weird happened to me, David. I was doing some comedy uh, of the stand up variety. I had not gone up yet. And as I was sitting there, this lady was uh, sitting in front of me. She swiveled in her chair, turned around, and she handed me a little piece of paper. She goes, can I get your autograph? Now, the piece of paper was just like a, a card from the theater. It was Cold Town Theater here in Austin. And I was like, oh, in my head, I was like, oh, I guess she's having everyone on the show sign it for some reason. So I said, autograph, sure. And I, you know, I tried to sign my name so you could still read it, the... the <laughs> The whole point of an autograph. Gave it back to her. And then she gave me $20. And what? then uh, walked away. No one else signed it. First of all, I'm not famous enough at all. Well, I'm not famous, David. But I'm right. I'm not um, I'm not used to signing autographs. The last time someone asked for an autograph, I, I fucked up. Because I was just like, oh, sure. And they came to a show of mine. She's like, can you sign my ticket? And I was like, yes. And I wrote down uh, Mac Blake. Whereas I should have said, like, thank you for coming, uh, Janet. Mm. 
if I'd known it was just me, I would have been like, what's your name? You know, think this, thanks a lot for saying hi, et cetera. But instead it just says Mac Blake, like that matters at all to anything. And also the money. David, if someone had done this to you, had <laughs> done this to you, maybe I'm tipping my hand how I feel about this. <laughs> what would your reaction, how would you feel about it? Oh, I'd feel like a sucker. I feel like they took my signature and they're going to put it on documents and now I own no home. Uh, that I, I just, I'd feel like a rube. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'd go that far in that direction. I just felt like, I'm sorry, you shouldn't have done this. I, do you think I'm someone else? But then I told this to another comedian at the show and she goes, oh, that's so sweet. Which is like, wow, why can't I just get that into my head? Just view it as a compliment and not like a, what just happened? kind of moment well because everything gets gross when it becomes transactional like you know if someone wanted my autograph weird but okay that's neat but then to pay me twenty dollars for it when i didn't ask for twenty dollars it's just like then my mind starts racing and like does she want used underwear or something like how much can i squeeze out of the out of this person oh interesting look i thought the twenty dollars was weird uh, but did i mind it hell no that money is gone already i spent that 20 bucks <laughs> thank you very much i appreciate it I just wish I, I don't feel like I gave her $20 worth of anything. Yeah. And then my set later, I was like, fine, I'll try. And then I didn't. I, uh, I started goofing around. Uh, well, actually, that's not true. I tried. I just get derailed so easily these days. I'm a bad comedian now, David. I don't know if you know that. Well, that autograph is going to be worth that $20 when you end up punching that senator. I think she's just putting futures down on you. I'm not going to say his name, but you got a knuckle sandwich with your name on it, Mitch McConnell. <laughs> One more thing, David. Since we last spoke, I saw another action-oriented animated movie. I saw the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem animated film. And full disclosure, I, I saw it twice. Oh, let's go. Ta- tell me all about it. Well, I saw it first like I was because uh, I needed to see when it came out because I, I really was digging the trailers and the, the vibe of the animation. I saw it with some buddies, John and Daniel. Shout out to those dudes. But then I was like, oh, I'm going to take my, my kid to this. I saw it with him and I, oh, I almost fell asleep. Oh, God. No. I, I'm just, I can't wait to fall asleep in a movie. It just seems like the most luxurious thing. I felt myself getting tired. I'm like, is it going to happen? Am I going to finally do it? But no, the movie kept me awake. Damn it. I just was a tired guy. But in terms of Punch Mountain, I did want to give a shout out to one part of the movie because there's a part, David, where the Ninja Turtles realize they can fight. They're like, oh, our ninja training actually works. Let's go beat up some bad guys. And this sequence is like them beating up four different bad guy bosses. And the fight scenes are cutting between these different locations. But it's set to No Diggity by Blackstreet. David. I did not know how badass that song would be over a fight scene, but hell yeah. I mean, man, we talked about it before. Sometimes, you know, action movies, they can be a little too serious and it's nice to get a little swagger. When these fucking cartoon turtles were kicking ass to no diggity, I was on board. That was my favorite scene uh, in, in the movie both times. David, is it time we go into this thing? Mac, grab your super suit. We're going in. All right, David, just in case someone has not seen The Incredibles in a while, or maybe they're unfamiliar with it, what? Can you level set and give the back of the box description, maybe, please? I'll do that right now. From the Academy Award-winning creators of Finding Nemo comes the action-packed animated adventure about the mundane and incredible lives of a house full of superheroes. Bob Parr and his wife Helen used to be among the world's greatest crime fighters, saving lives and battling evil on a daily basis. Fifteen years later, they have been forced to adopt civilian identities and retreat to the suburbs where they live normal lives with their three kids, Violet, Dash, and Jack-Jack. Itching to get back into action, Bob gets his chance when a mysterious communication summons him to a remote island for a top-secret assignment. He soon discovers 
discovers that it'll take a super family effort to rescue the world from total destruction. Exploding with fun, this spectacular movie is high-flying entertainment for everyone. 2004, 115 minutes, directed by Brad Bird, rated PG for action violence. Oh God, I feel like it was 115 minutes reading that description. Too long. Too many details, too. <laughs> like, if you pick up the back of the box, you're like, oh, is this the one with Violet Dash and Jack? Oh, it is. Those are the names of their kids. We, we don't need to know this stuff. Shorten it down, back of the box copywriter. Also, hey, copywriter, I'm surprised your editor let you keep the word mundane in. Like, unless you're doing a Todd Solondz movie, you should never describe anything going on in your movie as mundane. Like, just spice it up a little bit. Make it something else. Look at all these adjectives. Bob gets his chance when a mysterious communication summons him to a remote island for a top secret assignment. Whoa. We are getting descriptive here. Now, Mac, remember, this is a movie for children, so I wonder if they're just like, you know, what would a six-year-old like to read? They love descriptors. Let's do that. No, of course I know that, David. This movie is definitely exploding with fun, and it's a spectacular movie with high-flying entertainment for everyone. (laughs) Speaking of which, how does this movie start? Mac, this movie starts with some old animated newsreel footage where we're introduced to some of our favorite heroes of yesteryear, the brave Mr. Incredible, voiced by coach Craig T. Nelson, the bold Elastigirl, voiced by Holly Hunter, and the cool Frozone, voiced by Samuel L. Jackson. We learn a little bit about their lives as supers before we see Mr. Incredible en route to his wedding to Elastigirl, but still making time to stop a high-speed chase, foil an attempted suicide, and save a cat from a tree. But while trying to stop a robbery in progress by the evil bomb voyage, Mr. Incredible is distracted by budding sidekick and number one fan Buddy, voiced by Jason Lee. After yet another rescue, this time of a train in danger of crashing, the world thanks Mr. Incredible and the rest of the Supers by deciding it's had enough of Supers and bans them into hiding. Mac, what'd you think of this start? Yeah, it was interesting, David, because you're right. At the beginning of the movie, it starts with this like newsreel interview with uh, our three heroes. And the interview looks like it's like shot on film, like kind of, uh, I don't know what era you would put this at. David, what do you think about this movie's aesthetic? Because it kind of, it sort of has like a retro visual style with mixed with kind of today's technology. Uh, how did that, how'd that resonate with you? It felt a little bit like Batman the Animated Series, but taking place in the daytime. I, I, I thought it fit, you know, this... This movie and this premise, it kind of needed to exist in a more innocent or primitive time. Like there's a moment uh, at the very beginning when we see Mr. Incredible in his car and the car transforms into the Incredimobile, you know, it just goes from his regular sedan to his superhero car. Like if this existed in the modern world, then surveillance would have outed Mr. Incredible a long time ago. But you sort of need that that simpler time. You know, you also need to set it in a world when we had that kind of relationship with superheroes, if I can say that about a fictional thing. Well, you think about like, you know, Superman in the 30s and 40s, where he was truth, justice in the American way, and we all admired him unquestionably. I think this movie needed to take place in that kind of a world. I think this is terrific. I think this is this is perfect for this movie. Yeah, I was trying hard not to say Batman the Animated Series in the question because it really reminded me of that. And I wonder if Brad Bird's like, oh, I just this is what I always wanted, or if it drew inspiration from that. But yeah, I don't mind it either. In fact, I, I kind of feel like like a Fantastic Four movie, it works better if it takes place in the 60s, especially because that is so tied to the space race. Because look, we're not dealing, they're not in New York City. They're take, this movie takes place in Municiburg. So the fact that it has its own style and it kind of can pick and choose what technology it exists, it, it works. Yeah, and I'll tell you what helps with that. So, you know, we talked about at the top of the show, 
My MVP for this movie is going to be the voice actors, Craig T. Nelson, Holly Hunter. They all fit. Like, you know, like I said, they're not the biggest names in the world, but they're Mr. and Mrs. Incredible perfectly. My sixth man of this movie is going to be Michael Giacchino, who did the score. I believe this was like his first big feature film effort. I know he did the music for like Lost and he did a bunch of other TV shows and video games. But man, the Michael Giacchino score, this is probably one of my favorite scores. It acts as another character of the movie. It sets the tone for what this movie is immediately. I'm in love with it. I I think this is terrific. So after the interviews are done, we see Mr. Incredible driving around. He's wearing a tux, but he's on his way. We find out later he's on his way to his wedding. But, you know, here's about some crime going down on his police scanner. And he's like, I got time. And he starts like foiling all these these robberies, etc. And the sequence, it does a good job of showing who Mr. Incredible is. Because later in the movie, you get this sense that Mr. Incredible, you know, that he misses his superhero life. And, you know, with someone like him who has all this power, you might think like, oh, what does Mr. Incredible care about? Or what does a superhero care about? Does he care about like beating people up? Or is he, you know, addicted to, to violence? Does he, the idea that he lives uh, outside the law and then he could do what he wants. But he takes a pause from going after a bank robber or some sort of like, you know, robber to help a lady get her cat out of the tree. So you get a sense of like daring do, but also the fact that he stopped and he prioritized that cat, even if they didn't turn into like a little comedy sequence. Mr. Incredible also likes helping people. He like legitimately likes helping people. This sequence, you know, establishes him as like, oh, he is a, he's a good guy. Not just because he like gets his kicks from beating people up. Yeah, it does a really good job of establishing that Mr. Incredible, Bob Parr, has no identity outside of being a superhero, so that when it is taken away from him, you do get a sense that he does feel a great sense of loss of, you know, of, of his purpose, of his self. Maybe he, he wears it a little too much for the, through the next 15 years of his life. But yeah, no, he derives his personality, his sense of self from being this hero. The, the narrative economy in this opening is, is actually really well done. And this movie does a pretty good job overall of like setting up this superhero world. I mean, even the fact that like you, what do you call superheroes in this movie? Like like we call them supers, you know, like in some DC stuff, they call them like meta powered individuals. And then other, you know, there's other terms in other universes. You know, this movie, it sets up its own superhero world and it does get to like be playful about it while not being like a parody. Like they do me like a French, you know, uh, bombing villain and they call him Bomb Voyage, which, you know, it's fun, but it's not, you get like a little bit of joke without it being like too jokey. And I think this movie overall does a pretty good job of balancing the fun of superheroes without getting too silly or even taking them too seriously. It, it does. This movie is, is consistently carves out a really good fun lane for it to drive a fun car through on the fun expressway. David, I think I just created the perfect metaphor. How, but however, going about his day, Mr. Incredible runs into his number one fan, Buddy. Buddy, voiced by Jason Lee. This is the kind of role that makes you look up his IMDb and wonder, where has he been for the past 20 years? Oh, I did exactly that. Yes. (laughs) But, you know, it's a good way to start this movie because I think we recognize by now nothing good ever comes from having a number one fan. Selena had a number one fan. Like, James Conn and Misery had a number one fan. So for Mr. Incredible to have a number one fan, you've told me everything I need. Thank you, movie. But, Dave, what do you think about this? Opening overall, you know, after we get the Incredibles title card, this uh, whole sequence of Mr. Incredibles' busy day. I think it's great. It actually, it helped to validate this pick as far as being an action movie, because this is a hot start. I mean, you go right from the, you know, the the film strip opening to a high-speed chase to the cat in the tree to a suicide rescue, which feels a little bit out of tone with a children's movie or a family movie. 
But you go from that to a robbery, to a train rescue. This is action. This is exposition. I thought this was an all-time action opening, to be perfectly honest with you. The thing that kind of drove me nuts, though, is after all of this, you know, action, 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 action. At some point, Mr. Incredible has to go to his own wedding. You know, he he's late for his wedding to Elastigirl. And he's like, I gotta run. And the cops are like, hey, but what about Bon Voyage? We, we, we still gotta catch him. It's like, guys, do your jobs. You know, I've always wondered... Mac when Superman died back in the 90s, you know, when there was the gimmick of the death of Superman, I always wondered if they were going to explore that. Like, what happens when an entire society or an entire city or, you know, when they depend on someone, when the whole reason they sleep well at night is because they know there's someone out there protecting them? What happens when you pull that thing away? What happens, you know, what kind of vacuum is created? What fills that vacuum? Like, that fascinates me. This is way too early in this animated movie for me to be thinking about stuff like that. So just cops, do your jobs, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, the answer is, is that other people step up. But David, this is a world with supervillains. When uh, Mr. Incredible's actions of saving the person trying to commit suicide, it results in that person suing Mr. Incredible. And thus the legal floodgates uh, open up. And now there is a flood of lawsuits against superheroes. And the government does not want to pay their bills. And they kind of realize maybe we should not have these unsanctioned people uh, fighting crime. And so now we have a superhero ban. But you'd wonder if there's a superhero ban, these supervillains are already outlaws. Where do they go, right? Like, but somehow <laughs> they disappear too. But, you know, that kind of thing that's put forth in like, you know, Batman movies, et cetera, that the villains are only there because of the superheroes. That without superheroes to fight, there would be no supervillains. That they kind of like create and inspire each other. Which, I mean, I don't know, maybe, man, like that's, Okay, you know, if you say so, I guess that's what this movie said, because when we rejoin Mr. Incredible like 15 years later, it's not like Bon Voyage, ruler of the world. But again, I think that's why this movie has to exist in a time like the 50s or the 60s, where it feels a lot more innocent, where it doesn't feel like there's a mounting death toll by getting rid of heroes. It really is just like, all right, you crazy characters, break it up and stop fighting. Like, that's really all this is, is just a constant everyday fight. Yeah, if this happened in like the in like Frank Miller's 80s or something like that, no, Joker would have like, he would have painted his face on the side of buildings. Painted his face with the blood of children. But David, we jump ahead 15 years. We find the Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl. They're now, you know, because of the superhero band, they're living their normal lives. Yeah, they're now Bob and Helen Parr. Bob is an about-to-be-fired insurance salesman, and Helen is raising three kids by herself because Bob is not a good dad. We meet the Parr children, the Speedy Dash, voiced by Spencer Fox, the Invisible Violet, voiced by Sarah Vowell, and their seemingly normal baby brother named Jack-Jack. Bob lives the typical domestic nightmare of familial love and support, but yearns for the old days of being faded by strangers. Bob and his super BFF Rozone, Secret Identity Lucius, spends nights lying about going bowling instead listening to police scanners waiting for their hero moments. After a close call with a building fire turned mistaken robbery attempt, Helen tells Bob to cool it and leave the past behind. But who is this mysterious lady, voiced by Elizabeth Pena, monitoring Bob and Lucius, and what does she want with Mr. Incredible? So we jump ahead 15 years, and we also kind of jump ahead to what feels more like modern day. I mean, there's still elements of kind of a retro 1960s future, but for the most part, it kind of feels like it could be the world outside your window circa 2004. And Bob is now, he's put on some weight, and also he's grown. Have we put the old Mr. Incredible next to the, the modern day one? I feel like he's taller, too. Uh, he's become more of an ogre. Like, he really is just like human Shrek. And then you know, when he slims down, it's like, oh, okay, now you're a human again. Yeah, he's kind of like the uh, Kingpin in Spider-Verse. He's just a giant circle. But David, even though he's got a boring job as an insurance salesman, 
he cannot help but do good because when this old lady comes and uh, asks for the insurance company to honor their policy, he says, uh, no, we cannot. But then when she starts crying, he, he's like, okay, I can't tell you how to actually do this here. Write these things down. And this is how to actually get an insurance company to uh, honor their insurance. David, w- what kind of world do we live in where we're like, that's an insurance company for you? <laughs> uh. Oh, you mean just sort of shaking it off and shrugging instead of burning all of the insurance companies down? We live in this world, Mac. We live in 2023. But like, it's a very charming introduction to Bob's current life. You know, he's he's a lowly insurance man, but he is still doing good. I wish he would have written down the loopholes himself, but I understand it's a movie trying to entertain us. It's really interesting for this movie to show him being an everyday hero to normal people. I almost wish he would have taken pride in it. I almost wish like this would have been his new mission to take like to knowingly take down the insurance company in any way he can. But he really just plays it off as this zombie kind of going through life. And, you know, this movie strikes a really interesting tone about how how bad it is to be normal. I don't know. Maybe I'm watching this through through older eyes, but there's something about its treatment of normalcy that really rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, and real quick, before the Affordable Care Act, the fact that insurance companies could refuse to cover you because of pre-existing conditions, basically being like, oh no, we only want healthy people for our health insurance. The fact that we did not have the CEOs of insurance companies, their heads on pikes, just you, you really dodged a bullet there. And by bullet, I, of course, I mean a, a guillotine. But yeah, David, you're right. This, this idea of like normalcy, the life that Bob is, is leading is what you and I would call like a normal life. He's got a job, it pays the bills, he's not crazy about it, but then he goes home to his wife and kids who he could not be more bored with. He's got a home, he's got three lovely, healthy children. You know, he gets along well with them. Like he, you know, there's a moment here where where Dash gets in trouble and goes to the principal's office for playing pranks on the teacher, but then he goes home later and like his dad is excited that he's using powers, that he's getting away with playing these pranks. Like, I don't know. I, I wish this movie wasn't so mean about his his normal life. Yeah, he could not be bothered to give a shit about his son until his son like did something he used to do, which is use his powers all the time. I mean, yeah, he just cannot get over this like past life. I mean, honestly, Bob kind of comes across as sort of a piece of shit. But David, Bob is not the only one feeling caged in by his modern life or just his restrictions on superpowers. Because you see his son, Dash, who does have super speed, he uh, he's using it to put like sneak tacks on his teacher's chair, which is pretty fucking harsh. But at the same time, you know, whatever. And the teacher, you know, he's like, he, I don't know how he's doing it, but he's doing it. It's kind of this weird, crazy teacher scene that would be you know, real um, unsettling if it was in real life. And then his daughter, Violet, you know, the fact that her power is invisibility and that she's struggling with like whether or not, you know, where she fits in and, and it ties in nicely there with her her superpower. However, Helen, what's her superpower, David? Uh, she stretches. She's elastic. Yes. As Odin told Thor and Thor Ragnarok, uh, what are you, the, the, the god of hammers? You know what I mean? So the fact that Helen is not in a superhero costume and she's not uh, physically stretching as much, she still remains very flexible and can stretch and basically like, you know, raise three kids with almost no help from her husband, Bob. She's the one who realizes like, hey, the things that made me want to be a superhero and help people, it's not just because I stretch. It's because I have these internal qualities and they are still on display. And Bob does not get that because he's a big lunk of crap. Bob misses everything, including Helen's cry for help. And by that, I mean left overnight, Mac. I cannot stop thinking about the dinner that they have that night uh, when they all come home. It's left overnight. And what that means is they have leftover steak. They have leftover meatloaf. They have leftover pasta. 
Like, this is Helen's cry for help. She is at home. She's whipping up these meals. She's whipping up so many meals, she she doesn't know what to do with them. And Bob doesn't appreciate this effort. Bob doesn't appreciate the variety of foods. Like, somebody free Helen from this movie and from this lifestyle, please. Also, you see the size of Mr. Incredible? How the fuck do they have leftover steak? <laughs> This dude should be joining the CPC Clean Play Club every night, especially steak night. Uh, My God, get that in me. But Mac, Bob's buddy, Lucius, Frozone, is going to show up. They're going to go bowling, quote unquote. But actually, they're going to go sit in his car and relive the glory days and listen to the police scanner. But again, Mac, I talk about this in a lot of movies, the the day one versus day 1000, where we, we cut to Frozone and Bob sitting in their car Reliving the glory days, Frozone's telling a story about a, a villain who, who got caught monologuing and Frozone got the jump on him. We've had 15 years since they went into hiding. I feel like there should have been a moment where Frozone tells a story and then just says, what the fuck are we doing? Like, just, you know, has a realization like, we're reliving these things. And I guess he kind of does to an extent, but like, I really wish the movie had worn a sense of defeat a little bit more. Like, is this really what we're doing? Just reliving the past over and over? I did get the sense that Mr. Incredible was not really listening to Lucius. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's just the uh, the delivery of Craig T. Nelson was like, uh-huh, or something. But the idea, he's just like, could not wait for the police scanner to, to chirp up so he could cut that story short. But that is what happens. There is a fire uh, close by our heroes. So they put on some ski masks and they rescue some people from the fire. But David, uh, a floor gives way. And our heroes, or is the floor or a wall? Do they bust through a wall? Bust through a wall. And our heroes find themselves accidentally foiling a robbery. But with the real robbers knocked out, Lucius and Mr. Fantastic are uh, stuck in a jewelry store when the police arrive. And Lucius and Mr. Fantastic, excuse me, I said Mr. Fantastic, Mr. Incredible, they're wearing ski masks. David, they look like robbers. Oh, no. Uh-oh, boing. So, of course, this is going to complicate things. But this is going to be a great moment for Samuel L. Jackson. It feels like the human physical Samuel L. Jackson is in this movie. And by that, I mean the line delivery that he gives when he's told to freeze by the cop. In fact, let's just go ahead and play this clip right now. Freeze! I'm thirsty. I said freeze! I'm just getting a drink. All right. Had your drink. Now, I want you to. I know. Freeze. Like that sort of slow, measured, calm Samuel L. Jackson. That's like Pulp Fiction, Samuel L. Jackson. That's like, be cool, Ringo. Like, I, I love it. I, you know, again, the voice actor choices in this movie, top notch. I thought this was a showcase moment for Samuel L. Jackson. But they're going to get home. Bob's going to sneak in real late. He's going to steal a piece of cake. He's going to steal an entire hunk of cake. It's very clear from the argument he has with Helen. It's very clear throughout the first half of this movie. Bob is having a real hard time adjusting to life of being a regular person. And I'm wondering, like, the government, when they're doing all this relocation, when they're footing the bill for everything, they couldn't have chipped in for therapy. I feel like a lot of this could have been tamped down 10 years prior, just with some good sessions of, of getting to the core of what makes Bob, Bob. Do you get the vibe that Bob would have gone along with therapy? I get the feeling if his government buddy, Dick Trickler, whatever his name was, if he had told him, oh yeah, this is the tough thing that men are doing, I think he would have. But yeah, of course there would have been that that scene where he's like, ah, therapy, I'm going to talk about my feelings. And then you smash cut to him crying and, and pulling tissues out of the Kleenex box. First, I hate to correct you, but the government agent's name was actually Cuck Buckler. No, I think Mr. Incredible is my parents' generation. And I know with my parents, they'd be like, therapy, that's for crazy people. And then Bob would have like, you know, I'm fine. 
and then punched a hole through the Washington Monument or something. Because David, Bob does and loses his temper at work. After he loses his temper, he loses his job. And then he's told by his government pals that they can no longer accommodate his seclusion. No more relocations, no more hush money. Bob is now on his own. But thankfully, the mysterious Mirage has a top secret job offer for Bob. Defeating a mysterious robot on a mysterious island for a mysterious billionaire. Mysterious. Sounds good to me, says big dumb oaf Mr. Incredible, who actually ends up being perfect for the job. So Bob gets chewed out by his boss at uh, Insurance Co. or whatever, again, voiced by Wallace Shawn. David, as he's being lectured, his boss is like fingering this letter that is on the boss's desk. And I thought like, oh, that letter is going to fire Bob. But then a second later, when uh, Bob looks out the window and he sees like a robbery happening, his boss is like, Bob Parr, if you don't pay attention to me, you're going to get fired or whatever. So wait, what is that letter? If if it's not a uh, you're fired letter. I really didn't think much of the letter. I thought it was just something for his boss to mess with because we, we start the scene, the boss is sitting at his desk and he's arranging pencils to line up perfectly with the lines on his on his desk calendar. So, you know, it's a good shorthand for the movie to say, oh, look at this guy. He's all prim and proper. He probably plays by the book. So, like, I just thought the letter was just something for him to adjust. Yeah, it makes sense that it would have something to do with the scene. But uh, no, it's just the letter MacGuffin. I mean, I guess it, it could have been like a letter of like rebuke. Like, I'm officially noting in your file that you have been um, talked to about not screwing over our customers by denying them care. <laughs> but at some point, his boss pushes Bob too far. Bob grabs his boss by the neck, throws the boss through several walls. Uh, David, this boss is dead. In the movie, you just see him in a neck brace. But David, he should be so dead. I would have loved to have seen, like, the family guy pile of a person just in, in you know, a few offices down. Yeah, he absolutely should have been dead. But thankfully, it's a cartoon. And he's just broken to bits and he'll never recover. That's a hard thing to cover up, I think. When Bob's superhero handler, uh, Rick Dicker, huh, I guess that's his name. When he shows up, he's like, we're going to have to pay this guy off. We're going to have to pay the company to be quiet. You know, men in black style, what are they going to say? Oh, there was a swamp gas explosion. And it sent this guy through four (laughs) windows. I would have liked, you know, back in the day, I don't know if they still do this, but uh, when Pixar released films on home video, they would include a little like short film. I think with this one, the short film was uh, you get to see what Jack-Jack is up to later on when he's transforming all under the care of his babysitter. The film should have just been the boss uh, relearning how to walk and then just dying. He's just, his damage was too much. He just couldn't do it. Maybe he dies and out the window you see the final Incredibles fight. I don't know uh, who this movie's for. Uh, Todd Solins, maybe, but I don't know. Not, not, for, <laughs> not for a normal audience. I could go for like a montage where this is his, this is the boss's villain creation moment. He just goes out into like the mountains and he's lifting horse carriages and getting swole just so he can kill Mr. Incredible once and for all. David, did you reference Todd Solondz earlier? I did. Fuck. <laughs> Second Todd Solondz reference in the Incredibles episode. Yep. It is the sound of Solondz. <laughs> but Rick Dicker does indeed show up. And uh, shout out to Rick Dicker for his casual mention of erasing memories. He's like, we got to pay off these people and erase some memories. It's like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. go back. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, you see that more in the sequel, but it is, uh, it is interesting just to talk over it. But when Bob is, uh, he clears out his desk and he goes home, he decides not to tell his wife because Bob's a piece of shit. 
as he's dumping out his belongings, what? A strange tablet falls out of it. And, and who sends this tablet? What's the deal with this tablet? Uh, this is going to be the mysterious Lady Mirage. And it's going to reveal that there's a top secret mission for Mr. Incredible. There's a secret government robot that has run amok and they could really use him to help stop it. And so he's in, you know, this is his moment to return to greatness or, you know, let's hope so. And let's hope he's not just getting his credit card information stolen. But he's, he's listening to all of this in basically what is like his like memories room. It's, you know, it's his costume, it's magazine clippings. It's, it's everything that reminds him of who he was. It's probably not health to have this room, I don't think. And Brad Bird is not afraid of being too on the nose because one of uh, the magazines that's framed in, in Bob's trophy room here is when Mr. Incredible appeared on the cover of Glory Days magazine. I I will have you know, I was walking through San Francisco a few years ago and I walked past someone's pile of trash that they were putting out and there was a magazine for seniors called Good Old Days magazine. And I thought for sure, like I thought I was in in the Truman Show and just we ran out of production budget. I was like, is it, we couldn't do any better than good old days magazine. Come on, y'all. But Bob, like, he lights up at this call. He's, like, super excited. But then the tablet is like, uh, this tablet will self-destruct. And it does. And it sets off the sprinkler system in the uh, Parr household. And David, I don't mean to uh, pick apart, you know, little things about this movie. But the sprinkler system is like an industrial sprinkler system. First of all, who's <laughs> home if it detects fire? Who has an in-home sprinkler system in their house? I have a smoke alarm, David. Like every time what I like, I burn some pasta. Uh, you know, I don't want sprinklers coming on and just like soaking my home. Oh, you would have thought this house was used to be an industrial kitchen the way it was set up. Yeah, this thing is just going to soak the walls. You're never going to recoup the value of this house. It's just going to be mold forever. But the thing that threw me, the smoke alarm goes off in its top secret memory room. Nobody bothers to ask a follow-up question. Like if the smoke alarm went off in my house when I was a kid. I would never stop talking about the day my dad set a secret fire. It would come up all the time. It would come up in fights. Like no one bothered to ask him, hey, what the what the hell were you doing in there? Yeah, I would say like we don't need to see that scene because he could just explain it away. But honestly, how did he explain that away? <laughs> like how do you explain away like, oh, sorry, uh, the, the printer. Maybe he real quick smashed a printer. <laughs> oh, the printer exploded. Uh, I was trying smoking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But the fact that they let that sprinkler system go, that was my, that that should have been your first clue that John Lasseter had definitely fallen asleep at the the wheel of Pixar and he was more interested in uh, driving a car of being a sexual fucking creep. But Mr. Incredible goes to the mysterious island and he fights the Omnidroid. It's an action set piece we'll call Mr. Incredible meets the Omnidroid round one. David, I thought this was a, this was a cool fight against kind of like a, what you would think of a, like a sci-fi robot looking like a, a big angry uh, metal ball. Yeah, this was a really cool fight. You know, it was just a cool setup. Like, we're taking you to this remote island to fight a robot. Like, that's really all I need. And that's really all Mr. Incredible needed. But you do get a sense that it has definitely been a while since Mr. Incredible has been into a a fight. Because at some point, you know, I think he's just like celebrating throwing uh, the robot into some lava. And he hurts his back. In fact, let's let's listen to this line read real quick from Craig T. Nelson. (laughs) Oh, my back. The fact that he goes up there a little bit, like, he really sold it. I feel like he easily could have been like, oh, it's my back. But instead, uh, he, I feel like he, he went method. He might have had someone uh, hit him with a sledgehammer in his lumbar area because uh, it's it a good line read. It's a good line read. This whole scene's very charming. You know, in fact, there's a part during the fight when the Omnidroid fixes his back and that sort of allows Mr. Incredible to save the day. You know, it is helpful as far as the movie goes to see him fall back into his element. Like 
to see him happy and to see him uh, feel satisfaction for something he did. Like there's almost a, a confidence to him where he's being told by Mirage, hey, look, this robot, it was built off artificial intelligence. It got too smart. It realized, you know, it could beat its owners. So we really just need to like shut it down, do it quickly. Don't destroy it. And Mr. Incredible's got it. Like he makes really quick work of this. I, I, It made me finally root for the character of Bob Parr. Yeah, and he goes about it in kind of a clever way. It's not just brute force. He hides inside the robot and kind of uh, teases it. And so it launches one of its tentacles towards Mr. Incredible who's hiding inside of it. And so the robot ends up ripping out its own, I don't know, brain or a computer part or engine or something. But it, he does uh, successfully defeat the robot. He then gets taken to dinner with Mirage, where they're flirting pretty heavily. It definitely feels like the mysterious boss who we sort of see in the shadows was like, hey, try to fuck Mr. Incredible. Like, let's get some blackmail material on him or something like that. I know I'm building too much of this animated family movie, but I think the Mirage was down to clown. Yeah, I think she was down to clown as part of a seduce and destroy operation from Syndrome, like like you just said, like lead him on. But I mean, I don't know. I think once uh, once they got there, I, I, I felt a little bit of a chemistry between these two drawings, uh, <laughs> 3D models. But David, also what he gets for his efforts is, uh, as promised, because he successfully did the job, he gets triple his annual salary and just, you know, one day's worth of work. So now he doesn't have to work for like the next three years. You know, Mac, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was hoping there was a loophole, you know, syndrome being a supervillain. I was hoping he'd be like, I realized you just got fired. Your annual income is zero. Three times zero, zero. <laughs> you work for free. But no, that didn't pay off. But he does get treated to a very nice dinner. Uh, Syndrome can't make it, so it's just going to be the romantic dinner for two. And there's a quick aside thrown in this conversation that they're having over dinner where everything that they're having for dinner, all the vegetables, all the all the meat, was raised and grown on this island because volcano soil, They, you know, the island has an active volcano. Volcano soil is fertile soil and they're able to grow this stuff and it's, you know, it's able to be healthy and strong and we never go back to it. I have no idea why they even mentioned it. I was sort of hoping at the very end of this movie, Syndrome would change his ways and realize, hey, I don't have to be a weapons maker. I can help with world sustainability and global hunger and I can be a hero to all. But no, we mention it once and then we never mention it again. I was hoping it was just setting up more double entendres where Mr. Incredible would be like, oh, I wish I could plant some seed in it. And then Mirage is like, let's see that seed. And then he's like, calling it seed is really turning me off. And she would go, I also feel uncomfortable with this. And then they just eat in silence for the rest of the meal. But Mac, this new job makes a newer and hornier man out of Bob. He's getting in shape. He's driving a new car. He's even getting a new super suit from designer to the stars, Edna Mode, voiced by Brad Bird. How about that? Bob returns to the island and finally meets the mysterious billionaire, a weapons maker named Buddy. But it's not Buddy anymore. It's Budding Supervillain Syndrome. When Bob and his new suit go missing, Helen turns to Edna for help. Thankfully, Edna installed homing devices in all of the super suits she made for the entire family. Unfortunately for Bob, these things happen to be the loudest homing devices ever made, and Bob is quickly captured by Syndrome. Yup, after this successful assignment, Bob is feeling pretty good, right? You know, he actually shows an interest in his children again, and the interest he shows in his children is just kind of baseline interest, right? It's not like he's like, oh no, Jack-Jack, I'll wake up with you early and, and we'll spend all this, you know, time together. It's like, oh, what is he doing with Jack-Jack? He's, uh, or not Jack-Jack, excuse me, uh, Dash. He's like, oh, Dash, I'll, I'll throw a football with you. It's like, you you didn't have time for this? When you were depressed, it takes five fucking seconds. Just throw a football. He'll bring it back real fast. 
Uh, yeah, again, he's a piece of crap. But David, uh, someone has noticed uh, Bob's new attitude, and it's his wife, Mrs. Incredible, Mrs. Parr. Because there's a scene here where Bob tries to leave for work, and Helen's like, no, I need that Incredidick. And she like grabs him and like tugs him back inside. And then also in part of this montage, I guess after they have sex, he tries to leave the house again, and she's like, no, I need round two. And she tugs him back inside. So uh, thanks, Disney movie, for these, these horny characters. But David, the villain of this movie, it's Buddy grown up and he looks like a troll doll. And it's Syndrome, voiced by Jason Lee. Duh, Jason Lee, man. I think when this movie came out, I was jazzed that he was in it because I liked him in those Kevin Smith movies. But, but David, here's the thing, because that's when I used to like Kevin Smith movies, but, but now I do not. I feel like it was something I've outgrown. The thing with Jason Lee is, David, I don't know if he's a good actor. Because he was in these movies, and Kevin Smith movies are not really like, you know, um, actor vehicles. Like, the, his dialogue isn't, aren't like actor showcases. Because Jason Lee was like good at reading Kevin Smith dialogue, which is kind of ranty. And that's one of the things that I wanted to check out while watching this movie again is like, Jason Lee, is he good? But yeah, I, th- I thought he did a good job. He, he's, a, he's a good, excitable guy for this, the Syndrome character. I thought he did an excellent job. I think this was peak Jason Lee. You know, you're absolutely right. Leading up to this, there was an appeal to him. And I think that appeal was he was an outsider. Like, I mean, his career, you know, he, had, he was originally like a skater. You know, he was just a skateboarder who had his own uh, skate company. And then he decided to take up acting. You know, it sort of felt like, hey, man, one of us made it. One of us is in Mallrats. That's cool. And so, like, to hear him in The Incredibles and then around the same time to see him in My Name is Earl for the couple of seasons that it was tolerable, you know, I, it was like, hey, good for him. I'm glad he's getting a paycheck. But then by the time you get to the third Alvin and the Chipmunks movie, you're like, hey, man, this role could have gone to somebody who wanted it. Well, look, before Netflix, uh, when the shows were on TV, you'd, you'd have to watch those shows. That's just how it would work. And so I saw, like, way too much of My Name is Earl. And the fact that this, like, California skater dude, I'm a big, dumb Southerner. I, it was almost offensive, I have to say. Yeah. Look, those, uh, those people have done enough to deserve some ridicule, but, uh, or historically, but still at the same time, those people. Listen to me distance myself. I'm from Texas, which I believe uh, was not a, oh, hold on, look at my history book. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, let me see what's currently going on. Oh, no. But you know who else is a scene stealer, David? I got to say Edna Mode. I mean, the fact that Brad Bird voices this character does that what do you think about that do you have any thoughts on that i think he did an okay job it looks like he's having fun when the movie first came out i thought he did a great job you know it was kind of one of those things where i didn't find out till years later that it was brad bird uh this time around i kind of watched it and listened to it with a little more scrutiny like is this offensive like what nationality is this but i think it was just a sort of generic well i mean you know to be fair edna mode is based off of edith head the the famous costume designer she did a lot of uh, hitchcock's costume she did a lot of co- costume work in the 60s and 70s so this is pretty much an impression of her so as long as it's done lovingly uh, i'm okay with not picking it apart but no this is uh, th- you're absolutely right this is a scene stealing performance i thought edna mode was charming in every scene she was in you know she really helps move the movie along by developing the super suits for the family this is great yeah we get a couple different edna scenes here in this part of the movie and especially the second one where you, she's showing a, a demo of the costumes that she made for uh, Helen and the kids. I think it's a good illustration of what this movie does really well, which is superhero world building. And the reason I think it does such a good job is because it's able to do some expansive deconstruction of superheroes and still maintain the wonder. Because I think there's a really like cheap way 
to treat superheroes. And that is to kind of, you know, it's too easy to like deconstruct them. Like Larry Niven, that science fiction writer, wrote this thing called like Men of Steel, Women of uh, Tissue Paper or Kleenex or something. And this idea that like, you know, it even kind of, it actually gets brought up by Jason Lee and Mallrats. This idea like, oh, Superman can't fuck anyone because uh, if he blew his load, it would like shoot out their back, which why did I have to pick the grossest example? Or even like um, in the Spider-Man movie with Sam Raimi that they're like, oh, let's, um, let's explain that Spider-Man can climb on walls by the fact that he grows little like hairy fibers out of his fingers. And that's how he's able to, to cling to walls. And I feel like that kind of like world building, deconstructing superheroes or trying to explain them away or it just it's I feel like it's antithetical to what a superhero movie should be or even superhero fiction. I mean, if you show Superman to a kid and be like, he can fly, the kid's like, well, how can he fly? It's like, well, he's an alien with superpowers. Like, okay, this idea of like, oh, we're so clever by taking these things apart, but it's able to do a little bit of deconstruction that does not feel redactive. It feels like it's expanding it. Kind of like, you know, the improv thing of like, yes, and. Like, if you're like, who makes the Incredibles like superhero costumes? And it's like, oh, it's this lady and their tailor bills must run through the roof. In fact, so much they can't afford to be superheroes anymore. But no, the fact that like, oh, it's this one lady and she loves it and here's how she does it. And just, I feel like it opened up another interesting part of the world instead of, just kind of doing it in like a cheap joke. I know I'm talking a lot about it, but what I'm trying to say is I, I think this movie gets superheroes. No, in fact, you reminded me of a line that Edna has when Bob first shows up to ask for, you know, for a quick patch job on, a, on his original costume. And, you know, he's talking about her life beyond designing for superheroes. And now she's designing for supermodels. You know, she's designing couture and she's like, ah, supermodels, they're just thin and whiny. And she walks past like a, a giant statue, of, you know, of, of ostensibly a superhero. And she looks at it wistfully and she's like, I used to design for the gods, you know, for for us to get the sense that she takes pride in her role in the greater good. Like I help put the costumes on the people who save the world. That's the kind of audience surrogate we need. We need to look at these superheroes through wonder again. So, yeah, no, I thought she was the perfect wrestle for that. Uh, I can't say enough good things about Edna Mode. Yeah, it's able to like flesh out you know, the superhero world, add a little kind of, you know, some some stuff that feels like realism, but that doesn't feel like, uh, you know, we're pooping on the party here. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, speaking of that sort of realistic world building, I think the syndrome villain origin is also, is also helpful along those lines where we learned that syndrome got rich as a weapons builder. You know, he created all these inventions himself. He created the rocket-powered boots we saw when he was in Credboy all those years ago. And so... Now he is Syndrome. You know, he's got this wristband that that controls all sorts of things, and he's got gadgets and stuff like that. So it makes sense that, you know, he didn't just inherit this wealth or something like that. He's a smart guy, and he knows how to use it. With that said, Mac, there's an interesting conversation somewhere in there about Iron Man, but I don't know how to start or lead it, because I don't know a ton about Iron Man. I just know what I know, and that he was a weapons builder who had a change of heart or, you know, had a, a sort of a change of conscience and realized oh, maybe I'm the bad guy. Maybe I should start using these things for good. Again, kind of setting up a possible ending for this movie where Syndrome realizes he could be doing something for good. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I I think this movie plays with its parallels to the Marvel Universe well, while still maintaining its own universe, if that makes sense. Yeah, and just as a side Iron Man note, I feel like those themes explored a little bit in the movies, but also in the uh, Matt Fraction and Salvador La Roca uh, Iron Man run. Uh, Salvador La Roca, also the artist behind those 
amazing uh, Darth Vader comics. Yeah. That dude, uh, he's got a pretty good career. But yes, Mr. Incredible is called back to the island, and this time he fights the Omnidroid again, but the Omnidroid has improved having studied and learned from its previous loss to Mr. Incredible, and we find out that Syndrome is the bad guy. However, Mr. Incredible is able to escape, partly because he hides behind the bones of another killed superhero, Gazer Beam. Yeah, Gazer Beam is going to be lost in some cave, carves out the word Kronos in the sidewall of the cave, which we find out is the password that Bob can use to crack open this, uh, essentially is Syndrome's dead hero database. It's, it's a record of the Kronos Project, which we'll talk about later. It's going to be the thrust of the third act of the movie. But it's, it's a database that breaks down all of the heroes that Syndrome has brought to the island and all of the versions of the Omnidroid that they fought. Again, it's a really good shorthand to tell you, oh, this isn't you know just some overnight project. This isn't the first time we're encountering the Omnidroid. This is actually the seventh version of the Omnidroid, that, the one that Mr. Incredible fought, because there was a version 1.0 and we brought in this hero to test it. This hero beat 1.0, so we created a 2.0, and then it defeated... Like, you you get the sense of kind of what the score is, where heroes get defeated, the droids get defeated, and it also helps you understand, oh, wow, this is where all the supers have gone. Because, you know, throughout the movie, Bob's wondering where, you know, Gazer Beam used to be a senator, and now he's missing, and, you know, we don't keep in touch with all of our friends anymore. They've been wiped out one by one by Syndrome and his, and his Project Kronos. Again, this movie does a really good job of fitting as much as it can into its runtime. Like, say what you will, uh, this movie moves. Like, it really doesn't feel like close to a two-hour movie. It zips along, and I think a lot of that has to do with the way it tells its story. And a real tragedy, uh, the fact that Syndrome is so evil. As one of the ways you can get around his mysterious evil island, David, is with these little like light rail things. It's like two person train cars that are just like like little like balls. And David, God, they look like so much fun. Like the weather just seems perfect there. And these cars are are like, you know, they're open air. Ah, it just seems like a dream just to zip around this little island on these little like (laughs) monorail cars or whatever. But there's a scene where uh, after Bob manages to escape, after tricking the Omnidroid with the, the bones of his friend, he... Uh, jumps on top of one of these two-person little like you know tram balls, and he you know he punches out the uh, the bad guy uh, henchmen that are riding inside of it. And then we cut to a couple henchmen uh, sitting at a gate, and the tram car that Bob was on it arrives at this gate, but David, it's no longer the car is missing. It's just kind of like the base with some wheels. And two thugs are like, huh? What's up? And here in the distance, you hear a huh, and then. They kind of look up and this ball comes flying out of the sky and, and nails them. It was a fucking cool shot and I forgot about it. My first mark out moment, David. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, it's it's really awesome. Uh, that's going to help get Mr. Incredible into the layer where he he finds the database. But around this time, you know, we, we cross cut to Helen with Edna. Helen's starting to worry about Mr. Incredible being out in the world, just lying to her. You know, he's clearly not working at insure care anymore he's clearly not at a conference so edna's like hey i've got homing devices on all the costumes on all the super suits if you want to find them so helen activates bob's homing device it is the loudest homing device in the world it blows his cover and so mr incredible tries to escape this this computer room and these cannons come out of the side walls and start shooting these like goo balls at mr incredible i remember loving this technology Back then, in 2004, when I first saw this movie, nothing has changed. I still love the idea of Syndrome creating this technology, inventing these things, 
and them having a real world use. Like, I don't know, just little details like that. I feel like I'm rambling and just gushing about uh, the finer points of this movie, but I love this movie. Yeah, these balls, once they hit you, they slowly expand and they stick to you. And so soon Mr. Incredible is like trapped in the middle of all these like sticky balls. And David, I love this fucking scene too. My second mark out moment with these goddamn sticky balls. And another thing I love about them, we don't need to know how they work. We get it. Syndrome doesn't come in and he's like, well, 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 looks like you met my sticky ball factory or something. Well, now as I say that out loud, maybe they cut that. But uh, yeah, we get it. We get how they work. We don't need an explanation. They're sticky balls. If you need to know how they work, you're a fucking nerd. <laughs> like, and not the good kind. <laughs> not the kind that put men on the moon. The kind that ruined the movie Star Wars. But full disclosure, though, the, watching it this most recent time, I was like, how does he breathe in there? But I'll let it go. No, breathing is fine. Just the fact that the, the balls, like, oh, do they have little engines inside? You know what? If you are asking because you want to actually make one, I take that back. You're pretty cool. Or a fucking super... I, actually, I don't know oh. anymore. Oh, life is complicated, David. We contain multitudes. But David, when all this is going on and uh, Elastigirl, Helen, she's like, where's Mr. Incredible? Does she suspect that he's off being like a superhero? What she think is going on? We get the sense that she suspects that Bob might be having an affair. There's a seed planted a few scenes prior where she's cleaning up the house and she goes through the closet. She sees one of Bob's suits and there's a long white hair on that suit. And of course, that hair is going to belong to Mirage. I don't know if we need this, Mac. And I, and I said the same thing in True Lies with the whole subplot with Jamie Lee Curtis and the infidelity and the hotel room dance, which I didn't mind, but at the same time didn't belong in the movie. I don't know if we need this here, like especially for a family movie, although it does kind of pay off later when Dash and Violet are on the island with Elastigirl. We'll get to that in a minute. But they're talking about like, oh no, I think these guys are going to break up mom and dad's marriage. Like it does help to see the world or see this movie through the kid's eyes. But I don't know if I want to see divorce through the kid's eyes. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And also finding a random hair. The amount of random hairs I find uh, going through my day or life, especially now that I have a, a child who just, you know, hey, look at my friends. I'm going to grab a handful of their hair to say hi to them. I wish people were having <laughs> affairs around here <laughs> instead of just like, oh, no, I found a random stranger's hair in my shoe. Oh, forever. Disgusting. Life is terrible. But Mac, with Bob captured, it's up to Helen to put on her new super suit and become Elastigirl one more time. She borrows a jet from an old friend and sets a course for Syndrome Island. But Dash and Violet stow away on the jet and Helen has to bring them with. Syndrome blows the jet out of the sky, presumably killing Bob's family, but that's still not enough to make him go into a murderous rampage. Helen, Dash, and Violet make it to the island with the advantage of everyone believing they're dead. This is awesome, Mac. I love this from the very beginning of it where... Helen realizes, oh, I've got to do something about this. She calls up an old friend. I think his name is Snug. And we, we pan over to a picture or we pan over to a photo on her, uh, on her dresser. And it's her and Snug. And I guess Helen used to be a pilot. I like this pilot past. I almost wish there was like a Disney Plus prequel of Helen Parr, Red Baron or something like that. It's just to me is a further example of why Bob sucks. Because like when they have kids and they're like, okay, which one of us is going to work full time or, or which one of us is going to help raise the kids? Was there ever a discussion of like, hey, Helen, you have a, actually a skill. You're a pilot. Why don't you go fly? That must be amazing. No, no, I'll, I'll go sell insurance uh, because I can't be trusted around children. I mean, for all I know, I mean, that's sort of discounting the fact that maybe Helen likes her children, <laughs> unlike Bob. So she wants to be around them. So maybe that was an easier decision for them. 
But yeah, she gets a super suit from Edna and her kids find their super suits. And she's like, hey, kids, uh, I got to go somewhere and get dad. Uh, You stay here. But they do not listen, David. And so when Helen flies away in this plane, uh, the kids are also in that plane. Yes. And there's a moment here that kind of threw me where Helen, you know, she's flying the plane by herself. She thinks she's alone in the plane. She's calling to the tower on the island. No one's responding. So she thinks something's up. So she's going to run into the bathroom real quick and change into her super suit. So I'm watching this movie wondering, well, she's, if she's alone on the plane, why is she going into the bathroom? But then you realize when she gets out of the bathroom, oh, Violet and Dash are there. That would have been weird for her to change in front of her kids. But Mac, I'm wondering, what do you think the slash fic for this movie is like? Do you, do you think on a scale of one to 10, how gnarly do you think it is? Uh, I'm going to give it 10 grossoids, David. I bet every unsettling coupling that is possible with this movie exists on the internet, David. So, so no, I I, uh, I think it's bad. I think it's bad news. <laughs> I thank you for participating in the question, though. I know it was difficult. Now, David, when she discovers that her kids are on the airplane, there's a reaction that uh, Elastigirl gives here, which is, and look, I get it, but she left the kids at home with Jack-Jack. And then when she just realizes that the kids are here, she says this. Ow! Violet! It's not my fault! Dash ran away and I knew I'd get blamed for it and yes, I thought he tried to sneak out of plane so I came in and you closed the door before I could find him and then you took off and it's not my fault! It's all yours all the time, I did! Wait a minute, wait a minute. You left Jack Jack alone? Yes, Mom, I'm completely stupid. Of course we got a sitter. David, if I am asking my kids, did you leave your baby brother alone? That is not the tone I am taking. I am at 11. You know what I mean? Like, where's the fucking baby? Like, I would have lost it. I understand this is a kid's movie. And so having that kind of like realistic panic is maybe uh, not fun. Because uh, later on when, when Jack-Jack gets taken by syndrome, I understand then as well why she doesn't have a realistic reaction of like, he's going to kill my baby. Like, I, I get it because we're trying to keep things light. It's an odd balance to strike because also, let's not forget, she's flying a plane to Syndrome Island to find her presumably dead husband and fight some robots. Like, for her to, you know, kind of already be mentally at 11 and then to have this other sort of 11 moment happen, yeah, it's it's tough to be angry and not throttle your children. But after a little yada yada and a little blah blah blah, Syndrome launches a missile at this airplane, uh, not knowing that there are children on board, but when he finds that out, it doesn't stop him. And David, you get a really cool sequence here where missiles are closing in. And by cool, I mean effective. Missiles are closing in on this airplane. Elastigirl is telling Violet to like put a force field around the plane and she cannot do it. And the missiles are closing in and they hit the airplane. And David, this scene is fucking tense. And I have to say, the reason why this scene is so effective I'm going to give all credit to Ollie Hunter. Like the way that she reads these lines, the way that she delivers the panic. I mean, because I don't necessarily think the direction in the scene is anything spectacular. And honestly, I'm going to say that overall. I don't think the direction in this movie is, is anything spectacular. Like, I think the action scenes in this movie are uh, fun and they're very clear, but and that is kind of what they are, though. Like they're not, they kind of lack a, a dynamism, I'm going to say, that you can maybe see in like a Spider-Verse movie. Like the camera angles and stuff. And, and I'll say this, maybe it was even a purposeful choice. Maybe they're like, no, we wanted some action. It was like clear and easy to follow. We weren't going for style points in this. We were going for story beats and emotion. In which case, you know, I, I think they did a good job of that. But the way that Holly Hunter uh, reads these lines, uh, 
and is able to put this emotion into Elastigirl. Uh, yeah, this scene is awesome. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm completely with you. With that said, you know, going back to right before the explosion, Elastigirl is asking Violet to put up a force field, which she apologizes for later. I thought that was a, a terrific moment for her, for Elastigirl to realize, I put too much pressure on you way too soon, especially when I've spent my whole life telling you not to use your powers. But there's a moment when she asks Violet, throw up a force field, we're, we're, we're being attacked by missiles, and Violet pushes back with like, but you said never to use our powers. I need Violet to get with the program. Like, you have to understand there's a time and a place for everything, and I think the time to use your powers is when you're in a plane headed to Syndrome Island and there's missiles on your tail. But they survived the plane explosion, David, and they survive it because Elastigirl, uh, with some quick thinking, turns into a parachute, and then when they hit the water, she stretches Plastic Man style into a boat. Which, again, I think that uh, <laughs> I'm okay with the fact that the kids just were like rolled with it. You know what I mean? Like, like oh, mom's a boat. Mm-hmm. We're going to get out of here. But if they had had Dash be like, your mom, you're a fucking boat. And then to like vomit because <laughs> it's so grossed out. I would have been like, yeah, that's probably what would have happened. <laughs> oh, the, the scene where like, get in, Violet. Dash has to pedal. It's like, I'm not sitting in mom. This is the weirdest thing ever. But I'll tell you what, Mac. Elastoraft and Dash Motor, this is very cool. It's the movie making use of the characters. Like, you know, if that's Mr. Incredible out there instead of Elastigirl, it's taking hours for them to swim to shore. But she can turn into a raft. He can paddle really fast. I love this. It, you know, it's it's the inventiveness of them figuring out how much they can do with their powers. I, I was really into it. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why the Marvel movies, you know, they feel like a different level than the Zack Snyder, like Justice League movie or whatever is because, you know, with the, with the Justice League, it's like, oh, these heroes are taking different turns punching. Whereas in the Marvel movies, they kind of tend to more like, I'll use my powers with your powers and we'll do something special. I mean, like that scene in Birds of Prey, when the characters were like finally like fighting together as a team, like this is teamwork, this is superhero teamwork. This is, if you're going to have a story about a superhero team, even if it's a family, uh, this is what, you know, we uh, paid our hard-earned money to see. Um, uh, a mom boat powered by a kid motor. So Mac Helen's going to go to look for Bob and tells Violet and Dash to stay put, but does authorize full use of their powers, which is nice. Helen infiltrates Syndrome's base in search for Bob, but finds out too late that Syndrome's Kronos project is already underway, and a rocket full of the latest in killer robot technology is on its way to the mainland. So we get another moment. They're on the island. They've survived. Helen takes a little too long to reform back into original shape, which concerned me, but that's okay. But she's going to go look for Bob and she tells Violet and Dash to stay put. And she has uh, a quiet and sincere moment with Violet where she's like, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I put too much pressure on you too soon, but I do need you to use your powers. And, and Violet's still kind of like, but you said never to use your powers. I really need to get, on the, get with the program, Violet. Meanwhile, on the other hand, you've got Dash who cannot wait. Like he, the enthusiasm he has. Uh, in fact, we'll just play this audio uh, where Elastigirl is, is is giving Dash free reign. Dash, if anything goes wrong, I want you to run as fast as you can. As fast as I can? As fast as you can. Stay hidden. Keep each other safe. I'll be back by morning. Like the enthusiasm there. Like for me, Dash's enthusiasm is going to carry me through this part of the movie. Like his turn to discover his powers and how he can be a superhero. I was so delighted by this. Yeah, Dash is a pure delight in this movie. Uh, He seems to, you know, the fact that he's excited about being a superhero, it makes me excited to, to watch him. But Helen, Elastigirl, she goes in search of Bob and she's sneaking around this base and there's these like doors you can open with key cards. And she's like secretly, sneakily stretching 
to pilfer a, a key card, she ends up getting stuck indoors. And I say doors, plural, David, because at some point her leg gets stuck and then she stretches over and her door gets stuck. And then uh, some other part of her, like a hand gets stuck. Oh, David, wh- what a mess. This is a mess, but this whole sequence, you know, basically Helen wrecking shop as she goes through the through the layer, culminating in the door sequence. That door sequence is a classic. I love it so much. It's the perfect example of what this movie can do. It, it's thrilling. It's charming. It's not too perilous. I, 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 have, I don't have enough good things to say about this sequence. The problem with this movie, The Incredibles, is that it is by far the best Fantastic Four movie. And the scene here where her leg is stuck in a door, like, you know, the door that she was originally, uh, the room that she was originally in after she stretched, her leg is still stuck in that room. A guard comes up and he's like, what the fuck? Like, why is this weird human leg there? This leg stuck in the door, David, it's a perfect example of why superheroes might be best in animation, specifically the Fantastic Four, David, because their powers in real life are disgusting. Like Mr. Fantastic (laughs) stretching. I don't blame uh, Josh Trank for thinking, hey, maybe I'll turn, you know, in his ill-fated Fantastic Four movie with uh, Miles Teller as Mr. Fantastic. The fact that he used uh, some body horror elements in making it, even though that's uh, the complete wrong tone for the inspirational Fantastic Four, I don't blame him for doing that because Mr. Fantastic stretching is body horror, especially if they add some sort of like stretching sound, like, you know, when he's like expanding, it's just fucking gross. Christopher Nolan, who's friends with Zack Snyder, I think he described Zack Snyder's Watchmen as being ahead of its time. And I I think whatever you think of that movie, I think that is true. I do like that movie, but I think it's ahead of its time. Maybe not so much in like, oh, it's only future audiences who are more sophisticated will get it. No, I, I think it just means it was too early. Because the problem with that movie, David, is when it came out, you know, Watchmen is like a take on a superhero team's. And at that point, the only superhero teams we've seen in movies is X-Men. So I think if it came out now, you know, after Avengers, Justice League, et cetera, The Incredibles, I think a deconstructionist take on superheroes would have uh, done better. But this movie, it's crazy to me that this is, like after The Incredibles came out, it was sort of like, oh man, this movie, like 3D animated superheroes, this is perfect. It's perfect for superheroes. Their bright costumes do not look out of place. Their powers aren't disgusting. It's it's perfect. And then I don't know if it if it came out too early or if it, ahead of its time, but the fact that nothing else came after it like blows my mind. Like the only what was the next superhero movie after this, like legitimately? Like uh Spider-Verse, right? I don't know if there's like some Euro movie that came out or an anime that I'm forgetting. I, I apologize. But like it's the only one I could think of. As far as animated action, I can only think of like the direct-to-video DC movies, which I've heard really good things about, but like Nothing that ever captured the imagination like The Incredibles did. You're absolutely right. You know, going back to the Fantastic Four discussion, I, I think about like the Impossibles from the Venture Brothers, you know, and the the Invisible Girl, her only her skin went invisible and you could see her muscle and tissues and that was disgusting. And like, it has to be a cartoon, you know, to watch a human being stretch would just, you would just, you would vomit forever. So this works and I think it worked so well. And especially, you know, coming around, coming out around this time, around 2004, where... As far as superhero movies in general, it's really just the Raimi Spider-Mans at this point. And then we get Superman Returns a few years later, which felt like a misfire. We're a few years down the road from Iron Man and the start of the MCU. So I think this one just came along at the perfect time to where everyone said, okay, don't dance back. This is this is the one right here. Yeah, but in terms of like 3D animation, you know, it was like Incredibles, Big Hero 6, 
and then, you know, Spider-Verse, where the fact that Spider-Verse, it, it just felt like we missed a step. Like Spider-Verse was such like a mm-hmm. unique visual take on it. It's like, okay, where are the, reg- the superhero movies that did not have to use unique visual takes? And yeah, I've seen a bunch of those DC animated movies. And uh, yeah, some of them are, are pretty good. I thought that, just this little side note here, I forget, that's the one with the Red Hood. I don't know if it's like Return of the Red Hood or whatever it's called. Under the Red Hood? I'm going to look it up real quick. I think Under the Red Under Hood. Under the Red yeah. Hood? Yeah. If not, you can you can use some combination of words to, to, to find it. I read the comics and then I watched the animated movie and I was like, oh, you know what? This animated movie is actually a pretty good, I prefer the movie to the comics in terms of like, the story just kind of, they did a good job of like condensing it. And those were good comics. Uh, shout out, uh, oh boy, can I remember who did it? Jug, Judd Winnick, I think, wrote them from the real world. Maybe Doug Monkey is the artist? We'll find out. That is to say, David, uh, I thought I also enjoyed that scene. <laughs> 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 My God, what a rant. David, if 10% of that makes sense, I'll take that as a victory. But Mac, while Helen successfully makes it to Bob, Dash and Violet wake up in the jungle pursued by Syndrome's guards. Dash and Violet unleash their powers and survive long enough to meet up with Bob and Helen, but the family is captured by Syndrome, who monologues his plan to the family, but does not stick around long enough to watch them die. No time for that. Syndrome has a city to fool into thinking he's a hero. So we get another action set piece here, which I'll call Kids Island Escape. So you see the Incredicids here using their powers, kind of like for the first time, you know, using them to fight people. And, and there's a lot of these like super cool, joyous moments when they, they figure out just how their powers work. But I got to give a shout out, David, to Syndrome, right? Because he's not uh, an idealistic leader, right? They're not follow his his soldiers, his crew, his thugs or whatever, his mercenaries. I say mercenaries, David, because do you get the sense that they're following him because they believe in him or just because he signs their checks? I think because he signs their checks. Yeah, me too. But still somehow through interviews or whatever, he manages to find some people that were like perfectly willing to shoot at these kids, right? Like if somebody pays me, like if I'm done, you know, I got, you know, I lose my job or whatever. And someone's like, Hey man, you want to live at a beautiful Island and just work security? No one's ever going to come. I'd be like, hell yeah. It seems like a great job. And then my boss was like, shoot those kids. I'd be like, shove this gun up your ass. <laughs> like I'm not firing at kids, but he managed to recruit some dudes like, Oh yeah, yeah. We'll shoot at these kids and actually we'll fucking kill them. Like at some point when the guy's like firing at Violet, there's no more like freeze. I see you. All right. Come with me. Like you won't get hurt. He just like, opens up fire on them. My God, Uh, Monster Island. I could see that being a normal reaction because, you know, you think, oh, look, there's kids on this island. That's weird. But then when one of them starts running faster than you've ever seen anyone run in their life, it's like when you catch a flying roach and you're like, oh no, you, I will not go to bed until you are dead, a flying roach. Like, so I could see that happening with uh, when you encounter a super kid. I could see that happening if the guard was like, uh, oh, fuck you, Hellspawn, and just like smashing... (laughs) dashed to death with the butt of his <laughs> rifle but instead they're like uh where'd you go girly you know like this kind of thug dialogue that's just like yeah i'll bring your body home for boss i think this movie strikes a perfect balance because it is playful you know you know you get the sense that they are trying to capture and maybe kill these kids but at the same time they are just kind of having fun with it and and it's a it's a fun sequence you know there's really cute light moments dash is running as fast as he can for the first time and he's realizing oh, I'm getting bugs in my face. Like, I'm just a human windshield. This is gross, but it's also very funny. Him getting into a fist fight for the first time and realizing how fast he can punch and how quickly he can can stick and move. You know, just there's moments like this. It's it's just, there's not going to be a lot of opportunities on the mountain when I say a fight sequence or an action sequence is joyous, but these are some really joyous fight sequences and action sequences. Uh, It's going to culminate with a moment right here 
where Dash is running for his life. He's getting away from a couple of guards and some sort of speeder bikes. And he sees a body of water coming and he closes his eyes and hopes for the best. And he's running across the water. This is going to be my first markout moment. In fact, I will say this full disclosure. Whenever we first started talking about markout moments, like way back in episode one and establishing the idea, if you were to do a Punch Mountain Dictionary, this would be the illustration next to, next to markout moments for me. This is what I think of every time when it's just like, oh my God, the hero found this gear. They're enjoying themselves. A another full disclosure, Mac, I cried in the theater the first time I saw this. It was just such a culmination of like, he's doing it. And I could do it too if I wasn't hungover, which might explain the crying, but uh, nevertheless. You got to save those tears, David. You're probably dehydrated. <laughs> Shit, that's right. Yeah, the movie, you know, its characters have fun in the movie and man, fun is contagious. Plus, uh, these, there's a lot of, plus there's some moments here where the kids get to use their powers together and then, you know, Bob and Helen show up and they're kind of using their powers together. And man, I, that is, I, again, it's just, uh, it's just more fun. It's terrific. You know, for me, when Dash and Violet join their powers and become basically a Dash ball, she uses her force field and he's just atmosphering American Gladiator style through the jungle. This is what you want. You want this family on the same page. And then, you know, for all their bickering as they're trying to escape, Bob and Helen smash up a couple of guards and speeder bikes together. And they just, you know, as there's an explosion going on behind them, they look at each other lovingly and just like, I love you. Like, this is, this is terrific. But in comes Syndrome, who uh, freezes him with his like zero point energy or whatever the fuck that thing is called, his little like freeze gauntlets. And as Syndrome is taking stock of his new captives, he's like, whoa, whoa, matching uniforms. Hold on a second. Is that Elastigirl? Mr. Incredible, you married Elastigirl? And he looks at the kids and then he delivers this line. Oh, and got busy! It's a whole family of supers! Looks like I've hit the jackpot! Oh, this is just too good! Is that stupid? I don't know, but I <laughs> I thought it was a good line read the first time I saw it. Something about it, it's a little off-putting, I don't know why, but it's I, it still gets me. I still think it's a, a good line read. Good, good job, Jason Lee. It's the weird country yokel tag at the end where he's like, this is just too good. It's like, are, are you, is this deliverance now? Like, <laughs> what, what tone are we striking with this? But that, that taunting, like, you guys got busy. Like, it's, it's, it's the right <laughs> amount of disrespect. I'll say that. It's childish. Like, you almost want the Incredibles to be like, we did not. But the Incredibles are once again captured. And while they're captured, Syndrome launches his, uh, the new and improved Omnidroid at uh, Municiburg. Oh, no. That's right, Mac. The Omnidroid version 10 is going to make landfall and begin wreaking havoc on the city. Lucius scrambles to find his Frozone suit, and Syndrome immediately has trouble defeating his robot creation. The Incredibles escape the island base in a rocket-powered RV and make it to the city in time to kick some robot butt. The family learns that working together and saving the world is way better than keeping secrets, and the Incredibles are beloved by the weak and cowardly humans once again. Oh, these people, right? With their problems. I'm like Mr. I'm like Dr. Manhattan. Can't wait to escape to Mars. Uh, just buy a gun, everybody. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so here we have an action set piece we'll call Mission to Municiburg. And a nice touch here, as the plane carrying the robot takes off, you see the thugs are celebrating because they're like, yeah, we did it. Our, our mission here is over. You know, there'll probably be like a 10% uh, reduction in, in staff. And we understand that. So we're just going to have some fun while it lasts. But they're even like, hey, tell you what, every time we see someone panic on TV, we'll take a drink or something. So again, Syndrome recruited some real scumbags. But I'll tell you what, you know, as we see the Omnidroid 
make landfall. We get a shot from Frozone's point of view. He's at home. He's splashing on some aqua velvet. He's getting ready for a date. David, that was high karate. Was it really? Yes. Shit. I will now put in, uh, I'll send you a, a Venmo request for a thousand apologies. But we see it from Lucius's point of view. We see the robot going past his window. And so it's Lucius's time to turn back into Frozone. He goes looking for a super suit. Just this little quick domestic moment where his wife doesn't care that there's a robot outside the window. They have a date. She's been planning this for months. She doesn't care what's going on outside. You know, just it's a little moment like that. It's a human moment. I really appreciate that you're not really getting in a, in a ton of superhero movies. Yeah, there's some pretty fun dialogue here. Don't you think about running out the doing no daring do? We've been planning this dinner for two months. The public is in danger. You tell me what my suit is, woman! We are talking about the greater good! Greater good? I am your wife! I'm the greatest good you are ever gonna get! David, I'm the greatest good you're ever gonna get. It's a really funny line. Now, whoever delivers it, I don't mean to, you know, pick it apart a little bit. It does sound like they're acting. Like, I don't get the sense that line read is someone yelling at their husband from another room. Yeah. But even so, it's still a good line. And, and maybe it's because the person yelling is yelling opposite. Uh, America's best yeller, Samuel L. Jackson. Hands down. Yeah, for sure. Still, yeah, a, a funny scene and, and good dialogue. But Syndrome makes a big show out of, uh, you know, beating the robot because he's got like a remote control that just he presses a button and it looks like he's, you know, destroying uh, the Omnidroid. But the Omnidroid, David, is too smart. Syndrome taught it to like learn how to beat people, including its master. And it starts to fight back against Syndrome who uh, wusses out like crazy and just runs away screaming. Flies away screaming. Yeah, it, the Omnidroid recognizes immediately, hey, Syndrome is attacking me using this little wristband he's got. Why don't I just shoot this wristband? And my question for you and my question for the movie is, why not deprogram the AI? Like, I understand the process. You know, you wanted to build something that no one else could beat. So if someone, you know, if some superhero showed up out of the woodwork, they wouldn't be able to defeat this. Only Syndrome can. But once you get to the Omnidroid 10, let's go ahead and snip those AI wires and just deal with the robot as is. Syndrome, not so smart. Bad news, David. You remember our episode about Olympus has fallen? Uh, of course I do. The Omnidroid has access to the Cerebus codes. No! Oh, no. Why did we make it? <laughs> Melissa Leo! Man, it's so, we're so good at creating the things that destroy us, David. So good. But the Incredibles are going to escape the island. They're going to hitch a ride to a rocket, and Elastigirl is going to hold on to the RV to keep the family in. MVP of this, uh, of this adventure is going to be Elastigirl. You're absolutely right. Uh, she's the MVP of this movie and also Incredibles 2, and it's not even close. <laughs> oh, God. But there's a moment here where they're making landfall, it's cute-ish. It's really kind of also drives me nuts. It's sort of this, it's it's too much of a domestic look into their lives where they're arguing over which exit to take. And it's like, hey, you don't need to do this. Just follow the robot. You could probably take any number of exits and get to the carnage happening downtown. See, David, this is where I think you need to remember the in-theater experience. Because I remember seeing this movie in theaters. And when they started arguing with each other, I remember these people next to me, David, they were just dying laughing. And the husband was like, that's you. This is me and you. This is you. And he wouldn't stop. He just started yelling, this is you. To the point where he, he got so agitated, he just drank some acid and died. But David, just the, oh, no. yeah. I mean, he really, it was just too close to home. But yeah, the, the slice of life here that Brad Bird captures. Oh my goodness. What a look into American, American homes and couples. Mmm. I can't wait to drink some acid. Back. But this is going to be the climax of the movie. It's going to be the Incredibles family with an appearance by Frozone versus the Omnidroid 10. 
I, I think this action's great. I think there's great energy to it. I think going back to the conversation of this has to exist in an animated world because the camera for all intents and purposes can move with the action without getting too lost. I, I, I think this is excellent. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, super solid. Like watching it, uh, you know, whatever amount of times I've watched it, you know, now I'm kind of like wishing that maybe the camera had been a little bit bolder in its movements. But at the same time, you know, that's the luxury of viewing this movie 12 times is maybe wanting, uh, you know, good to be great or something like that. But yeah, it's super solid, super clear. And then the ending, David, makes sense. Like it's not some sort of like deus ex machina. The fact that he's like, oh, you, nothing can penetrate this robot's hide except itself because it, he's bringing back something, something that happened earlier in the movie. And, you know, the way he launches the robot's own uh, like claw at itself, uh, it really works. And David, it kind of reminds me of another movie we saw. Mac, I'm going to say the four words you never wanted to hear. Shout out to Robot Jocks. Yeah, this is going to be the same ending as Robot Jocks. I love it. Yeah, I can say at minimum, this is, uh, it lost 20 mountain positions for shame. No, I'm joking. But for, for its shameless ripoff of Robot Jocks, how dare you be mean to Robot Jocks? So Mac, with Syndrome's assets frozen and his future ruined, Syndrome tries to take revenge by kidnapping Jack-Jack. But Jack-Jack ain't having it. We learn Jack-Jack isn't so normal after all and that Edna was right. Capes on a super suit are a bad idea. The Incredibles settle back into a normal existence, but still allow themselves a little superhero fun as a treat. So this will be kind of the epilogue of the movie. Uh, you know, it's got it's an action-packed epilogue, but we're getting the postscript. The, the Incredibles are in the car with, with Agent Dicker. He's thanking them for their service. He's saying, you know what? I think this might put Supers back on the map. And meanwhile, Dash and Bob are marking out over their day. And I think this is so great. You know, it reminded me a lot of the ending of Pineapple Express where it's like, oh my God, can you believe this happened? Can you believe that? Like, you know, it's... It's perfectly normal to have that. And I thought this was awesome. Yeah, David. And this is the other scene where they take a pretty casual stance to their baby being in severe danger because Syndrome steals their baby. He flies up in the air. And the thing is, is when Jack-Jack is like fighting off Syndrome with all the powers, his family cannot see him. It's not until Credibles 2 that they realize that Jack-Jack actually has superpowers. So the fact that they're like, what's going on up there in the sky with our super vulnerable baby? Oh, uh, hey, throw me up there. It just, again, they're real, they're real not panicky, but also I realize why it's maybe not fun to have parents uh, insanely stressed out that their child is going to be stolen or, or killed. But on the other hand, we do find out that Jack-Jack does have powers. What they are? Everything, I guess. He, he turns into elements. He turns into metal. He turns into fire. He turns into a demon. Uh, none of this particularly makes sense. But again, I remember being in the theater. We were hooting and hollering. This is going to be a markout moment for me just because to not know how this scene is going to resolve itself and then to have Jack-Jack be the hero of it. I love it so goddamn much I marked out. Yeah, this movie has like five great endings in a row. The fact that they're able to beat the robot, a perfect callback to how Bob beat it the first time. The fact that Jack-Jack has powers, you know, and he's able to beat Syndrome who, uh, and then the fact that Syndrome is sucked into the helicopter engine because his cape gets trapped, which is something that Edna set up earlier in the movie. And then also there was a little boy earlier in the movie who, when he saw Bob pick up a, a car, he lifted a car above his head in frustration. The kid was like, that's amazing. And he's like, I'm waiting for something awesome to happen. At the end of the movie, when the superheroes win, this little boy is back. This little boy's back. 
you know, so let, let's go through it. Like you said, from the time that Syndrome gets sucked into the, the turbine of the plane, the plane explodes. Helen is floating down with Jack-Jack. She's trying to soothe Jack-Jack and calm him down. Meanwhile, there's an explosion going on behind her. She falls. The plane falls. Violet protects them all with a force field. And the boy's reaction, just mouth agape. He's like, that was totally wicked. And I have to agree with you, little boy. That was totally fucking wicked. Yeah, awesome splash page moment there where Elastigirl was like, it's okay. And then the explosion happens behind her. It's uh, uh, really, really well framed. Uh, and yeah, a funny moment. Did I laugh? No, I'm a serious man. But I can see how other people might. But Mac, this movie's going to wrap up. We go to the elementary school three months later. Dash is allowed to play sports. He's allowed to run track. He's able to fix races and, and come in second whenever he wants to. And all is right with the world until we see a giant drill coming up from the ground. And it's the Underminer voiced by John Ratzenberger. And I'll tell you what, let's just go ahead and play uh, his announcement to the world. Behold the Underminer! I am always beneath you, but nothing is beneath me! I hereby declare war on peace and happiness! And Mac, this is going to be my third markout moment. This is how you end an action movie. Everything is right with the world. Here comes some danger. They're going to throw on their masks. They're going to shoot each other a knowing look and it credits. I loved it. See, this part for me, I, I did not mark out. And going back to like, you know, Jack-Jack having all the powers, the Fantastic Four, which this movie obviously borrows a, a shit ton from, their first child, Franklin Richards, his power is basically like he can change reality. So he's kind of like a god. So the fact that like, Jack-Jack has all the powers. That was kind of in line. And then when the Underminer shows up, who feels a lot like Fantastic Four villain, the Mole Man to me, I think at that point in theaters, I kind of was like, oh, we get it. Like, I just, <laughs> at, at this moment, it's like almost like a parody. So I, I kind of rolled my eyes a little too hard for, for me to mark out. But with a little perspective, David, yeah, it's totally cool. Yeah, I don't, I don't have the knowledge of Fantastic Four, so this was just an interesting way to end it. I will, yeah, I stand by my love of this movie and this ending. Yes, sometimes I wish I didn't know so much, David. It's a burden knowing so much that matters so little. And David, as the superheroes put on their masks and they're about to lose to the Underminer, spoiler for Incredibles 2, that is the end of The Incredibles. Okay, David, how many markout moments did you have? I had three. How about you, Mac? Uh, my two moms, which is impressive, considering the fact that before watching this movie this time, I, I might have even called myself pre-bored with it. Uh, so yes, watching <laughs> with fresh eyes, it, it paid off. Uh, some some hot moments in this thing. David, is this someone's favorite movie? I'll bet this is a lot of kids' first favorite movie. It might not be their favorite movie for the rest of their lives, but I think... A five or six-year-old is going to be like, wow, that's the coolest thing I'll ever see. I, I have to imagine that's true. Yeah, I bet it is. It's good enough for sure. All right, David, time for some punch-ups. Oh, we're the ultimate script doctors. Everybody knows that. David, is there anything you would do to improve this movie? Anything you do to punch it up? Mac, I'm not ashamed to admit I think this is pretty close to a perfect movie. I do have a couple of punch-ups, though. One, the, the movie alludes to the idea that Mirage is a super uh, Mirage syndrome's assistant played by Elizabeth Pena um, because she mentions to Mr. Incredible. She's like, uh, you and I have something in common. Nobody knows we exist. So like she might be a super. We never see her be super, especially later on in the movie when she kind of has a face turn and helps Mr. Incredible escape. And she helps the Incredibles to save the day. I would have liked to have seen some powers out of her. I would have liked to have seen 
her take on her own identity and maybe assist in the ass kicking of syndrome. I thought that would have been a really nice moment. Um, my overarching punch up though, I don't really need the family drama. I don't really need the conflict between them. I know it helps propel the movie, but like, look, when does a team lose as a team? I always think about my favorite family unit. And that's going to be the Evans family from good times where look, they bickered and you know, uh, they called each other names and stuff like that. JJ was a toothpick and, and, and Thelma was ugly. But at the end of the day, they all had each other's back. When James would lose his job, everyone pitched in. Everyone did their part to make the family unit stronger through tough times. I, I'm not quite sure I need the conflict between them. I kind of just wish from the start of the movie through the end of the movie, they were all on the same page. They were all in this together. Yeah, and what sucks is one, that ties into one of my punch-ups, which is Incredibles 2. Kind of an underwhelming movie. I don't think I would have been so underwhelmed by it if it hadn't taken 14 years to come out. But some of the downer aspects of Incredibles 1 continues in Incredibles 2. So yeah, my biggest punch-up though would be make Incredibles 2 already. Just make it. Just make it. Some other punch-ups. One is um, some more teamwork. I wanted to see some more moments where you know the these people are using their powers together. I know you get a small taste of it, but I wanted more, David. And my only other punch-up is I think this family should have given themselves an official superhero name because I don't think they ever refer to themselves as the Incredibles. But David, uh, I think your vote for MVP is also mine. The This family should have been the Elastifam, right? Not the Incredibles, mm. because uh, I understand it may sound better, but the uh, the straw that stirs the drink is definitely uh, Elastigirl in, in this thing. 100% on board with that. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Okay, David, please join me in the Punch Mountain video store. Now, David, as you know, this is an all-action movie video store, and we have three copies today of The Incredibles. Because it's an all-action movie video store, David, what subcategories of action would you put these copies in? Subcategories, I should say. Mm -hmm. Okay, so my first copy is going to go in animated action. It's the whole reason we did this movie for this episode. Let's start that shelf. I'm looking forward to populating that. Uh, second copy is going to go in superhero action. Uh, third copy is going to go in family action. I, I, I was holding on to this one in, during the inventory episode when we were having the conversation about like, oh, what would be a good action movie to show a, a 10-year-old? This is right up that alley. This is... You know, as long as you're not bored with it, as long as you don't, you know, wear out the tape on it, uh, this is a perfect one to sit down with on a Sunday morning and have a nice big stack of pancakes and watch yourself The Incredibles. You kidding me? That sounds great. I would maybe uh, also stick a cop if you had a fourth one and a section called No Perverts. <laughs> you can rent this movie. I just need to check your internet search history first. Just, you know, the last week. And if it's clean, nothing weird, you can, you can get this movie. Otherwise, you just fucking leave it there, you creep. All right, David, now it's time to reveal the position of this movie on Punch Mountain itself, the definitive ranking of action movies. As a reminder, the top six at the moment, number one, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, number two, Raid 2, number three, The Matrix, four, Jurassic Park, five, Hard Boiled, six, Speed. Now, David, before the mountain shares unto us its wisdom, where would you, with your fallible human brain, where would you rank this movie? Man, I'll tell you what. I love this movie. I love this as an action movie. I even thought in my head... This could be a mountain slayer. I thought this could make a run toward the top. But as I look at this list and as I think about it and kind of do a head to head where I'm like, well, no, of course not, you know, more than Terminator 2, of course not more than Raid 2. And I think the issue I'm having is that there's something magical about making a live action action movie. There's something about making the impossible possible. And I think that sort of hurts this movie's ranking. Maybe not enough to where it's going to tumble down the mountain, but I just don't know if it's going to be the stone cold top of the mountain classic that I think. 
I see it somewhere upper middle, maybe maybe not quite cracking the top 10, but somewhere in that neighborhood. How about you? Yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head where this is solid action, but because it is animation, I feel like it has more to prove or it just has a longer way to go because there's something you know thrilling about seeing uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme jump over a motorcycle and just you're not going to get the same thing if it's an animated person. And I, I think because uh, The Incredibles... It, it stresses lie and like, you know, telling the story and the family, et cetera. And it, it doesn't, it's not too ambitious with the way it animates action or portrays it. And, you know, cause with animation, there's no camera. So you can, so you can take the viewer like 360 de- uh, degrees around something, go upside down, in and out. And I feel like this, the action in this movie is just not as um, explosive as it could be or kinetic. And because of that, it, you know, while a great movie, uh, I expect it to be a little lower on the mountain. Because again, it's not an awesome movie mountain, David. It's Punch Mountain. This movie's not going to fill our minds and kiss our mouths. It's going to punch our faces. Uh, David, quick, go hide in your Omnidroid because uh, that sound is the rocks falling in the face of Punch Mountain. The golden letters are appearing and it reveals the position of the Incredibles, which is number 16. That means it's 14 The Rock, 15 Pacific Rim, 16 The Incredibles, followed by 7 Samurai and The Woman King at 17 and 18. Welcome to the mountain, The Incredibles. Yeah, I'm of two minds about it. You know, I, I could be sour about its ranking, but at the same time, look at the company it's keeping. Like a, a notch above the Seven Samurai. How mad can I be about something like that? Yeah, <laughs> that's weird. I love our show. Well, here's the thing: it's weird that those two movies are on a list. You know, what I mean? <laughs> but look, it's your your strange uh, mountain fellows, punch buddies here on uh, the Punch Mountain rankings. David, you hear that noise? Matt, did you activate my homing device? Uh, no, David, I know exactly where you are. Uh, you're in that bit of Jerry's you always recorded. No, David, that's a horn calling us to action. Because on this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're spotlighting FoodShare. FoodShare distributes nearly 19 million pounds of food, providing 16 million meals annually to people in Ventura County, California, through its hunger programs and 190 pantry and program partners. As Ventura County's regional food bank, FoodShare provides food for 250,000 hungry friends and neighbors annually. After each episode, this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to Food Share. Also, for every review we get on Apple Podcasts, we'll add $1 to that donation. And hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on the air. For more information on Food Share or to donate directly to them, visit foodshare.com. And hey, if you'd rather donate to your own local food bank, please do. That is awesome. Thank you so much. That's right. That's going to do it for Punch Mountain, folks. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter, sort of, but we're on Instagram also, at Punch Mountain. Or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. You can also join us on Discord. The link is in our link tree. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up. Next week, it's episode 40. Let's do a big one. From 2014, directed by Chad Stahelski, Mac, we're doing John Wick. Oh, finally getting dipping our wicks. All right. We'll see you next week. <laughs> I ruined it. Bye. Bye. Bye.